Where Murder Meets Mystery contains graphic and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, cool friends. Let's take a walk down the street where murder meets mystery. A podcast exploring the murderous, the mysterious, and everything that lies beyond the beyond. I'm your mystery master, Trevor. <laughs> and I'm Grace. Yay, that was so good. Trevor's first intro. Wow. <laughs> How did that Excellent. feel? Um, it felt feel like awesome? I was trying to speak very clearly. And <laughs> That's uh, good. That's usually the goal, at least. I don't think show. I did it as good as you or Marissa does, but you guys just have like the, I don't know, I feel like public speaking is probably more y'all's uh, forte. Yeah, why not? <laughs> In an endearing uh, southern, I don't know. I feel like my voice is uh, pretty, pretty unique. I don't know. Yeah, like um, I'm trying to think of, I don't know, southern actors. Matthew McConaughey, Woody Harrelson. Yeah. They both kind of have like a. Matthew McConaughey has a deep voice, but not in like a. I don't know. Your voices are not the same. He has a the Texas whistle. Yeah, but my voice is like deep sometimes, and other times it's like I laugh like, <laughs> like hi. So, I don't know. Yeah, but you do that, that voice. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I do a little bit of, a little bit of that. Yeah, but then you do (laughs) that. You go, oh, yeah, that voice. That's a, that's much. You have a, quite the range, actually. Yeah, yeah. uh, Earphone warning. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Sorry, earphone listeners. I almost clapped, but I did that too much in the last episode, and it was, like, very loud. <laughs> yeah, just fake clap. I was fake like, clap. You can't see clap. it, but I can see her. She's, like, not even I'm like, putting her hands together. She's just, like, I'm fanning the, her hands. I'm doing the Donald Trump arms. <laughs> yeah. Or you're just, like, <laughs> trying to dry your hands off because you're clammy. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Always. Uh-huh. I, stay, uh-huh. I stay clammy. Hashtag stay clammy. Hashtag stay clammy, ghoul friends. All right, listen, clammy, clammy ghoul friends. We've got yeah, our your cases today. today. Your case and our mystery might make your hands clammy today. Honestly, <laughs> probably. I like. We both texted before we started recording, and Trevor was like, "My notes are six pages," and I was like, "Fuck," because mine are too. <laughs> so, and now Trevor has seven pages. So. Yeah. So this will this will be super exciting. Yeah, super but like exciting. we warned you ahead of time, so like if you need to break this episode into halves, that's totally fine. No big deal. Yeah, you can no always worries. do like Grace's case and then come back and finish my mystery. I mean, or on, you can do Trevor's mystery and then come back and do my case. Yeah, timestamp that at uh, we don't know yet. So yeah, that's true. We, we just have to figure know. that out. <laughs> I guess you'll have to listen to the whole thing. You'll have to find oh. out. Oh, shit. We didn't mean to do that. Is that a new wing? Wing? Is that a new wedding yeah, wing? I, I did. Um, <laughs> I lost mine in the ocean. So I got a new Oh, wedding. no. Um, well, it's just a silicone ring. So, I mean, it's not like my actual wedding band. But um, I lost it in the ocean. The ocean took it from me. It's now Poseidon's <laughs> ring. Um, but good thing to know, uh, the, the ring that I have has like a lifetime warranty. And if you lose it, you can get another one in there. That's how I got this. I, went with I wonder if you're. Time. That's cool. I thought it was She's thick. Neat. I she wonder if thick. that 
ring is just floating around in that garbage island. The one that's three times the size of Texas. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know Wild. if it, um, I don't know if it, it floats. It looks a little, that ring looks a little like calamari when you do that. Oh, you ever calamari. had calamari? Yeah. Yeah, like the squid? Yeah, yeah. Kind of what it it's looks like. It's like uh, the squid, they cut it up. It's in a ring. So if you're curious, if you're curious what Trevor's ring looks like, it looks like calamari. <laughs> it, it, it Before really, you really fry does, it. Honestly. <laughs> ring, ring or a Nuva 12. ring. Calamari. <laughs> Nuva ring. <laughs> I used to know what that is. It sounds familiar. <laughs> it's a, it's a contraceptive device. Yeah, that is that. shaped a lot like your wedding ring. <laughs> I doubt it. That's it's pretty thick. It needs to be thinner than that. I would imagine. <laughs> oh man. Okay. All right. Should we get into it now that yeah, we're talking about Nuva rings? I think so. Yeah. So that's what new, it's new with me. I got a new ring. A Nuva ring. <laughs> a Nuva ring. What's new with you? Uh, no rings. No rings. I am... No, nothing's new, really, actually. Oh, I met my second student in person today. Like, or the second student I've met in person happened. I met them today. Awesome. His family was super nice. They bought my lunch. We went to this, um, like, Asian tapas bar in... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, sound off in the comments and the Spotify polls. I maybe I'll just do a Spotify poll this next episode. I'll yeah. ask. I can still edit the one that comes out tomorrow, so I'll just edit and add a poll and say, what, "Are you interested in seeing YouTube videos?" Yeah, and then you can our see recordings. our faces, and uh, I don't know. Maybe we can play around with throwing uh, some pictures up on the screen that would be YouTube friendly. I don't know. I don't know how our content would do over there. Might just get demonetized. This episode how, today oh, will definitely get demonetized. It certainly will be demonetized. How wild is it, by the way, that nobody, uh, that there are people who don't know what we look like? Like, isn't that weird? Like, people who listen to the podcast have no idea. Oh, well, yeah. Um, I mean, because a lot of our friends and family listen, but it's wild that there are people who've never met me or don't know who I am. Like, we have listeners in Canada. There's a listener in Australia. Hi. Yeah. Well, that's dope. Hi, Australia. Good day. Yeah. Good day, mate. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) My mystery comes from Canada, but uh, honestly, we should get into it. Yeah, we really should. I said that three times now and I keep forgetting. Sorry. Okay. Before I say anything else, though, I do have something to proclaim. So on the episode previous to this one, the one that uh, you've already- Episode 31. Yes. Episode 31. Uh, Trevor, I'm so sorry, buddy, because I doubted you on the last episode regarding Cedric Diggory's Hogwarts house. (laughs) And I honest to God thought thought you were a dumbass because you were like, Cedric Diggory's in Hufflepuff. That's no, also yes. part of Trevor's He's a rage. black and yellow fellow. <laughs> Just like me. And I was like, then I was very much wrong. I was and completely Tonks, wrong. And Newt yep. Scamander. And his brother Theseus, or Thesis, or whatever his name is. Yep. Mm-hmm. The 95 Thesis. Master's Thesis. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, my bad, guys. I also probably offended a large amount of you. So, yeah, so my bad. It's, it's fine. We live and we learn. Listen, yeah. I learn. <laughs> we both live. I learn. That's that's the <laughs> motto. Okay. So, boy, oh boy, have I got a crazy case for you ghoul friends and Trevor, who is a ghoul friend. Scarlett, yes. are you listening? 
If so, skip to Trevor's case, except maybe not now that I know that it's crazy too. So maybe Scarlett just turn it off right here. <laughs> oh my God. My case is a nine out of 10 on the Scarlett scale. For those of you who are- this time, good. In the, not a 12, the yeah. In the range this time, it's good. Yeah, most of my cases are a 12. But for those of you who are just tuning into our podcast and don't know what I'm talking about, Trevor's wife, Scarlett, is a queen, but she also gets scared really easily. So she asked us to rank each case or mystery on a scale, which we named the Scarlet Scale. Anyway, this one's a nine. Okay. This is probably one of the most famous cases I've covered, but I'm actually surprised more people haven't heard of this one. Today, I'm talking about Diane Downs. Ba-ba-ba-ba. Have you ever heard of her? No. She's like the uh, is she the muse or the reason like the the meaning behind Down with the Sickness, the song from Disturbed. No, <laughs> no. Yeah, a, I mean, well, job. maybe I I don't know for sure. That was not that did not come up in my research, but you'll have to let us know later. Yeah. So a little side, a little side goog. <laughs> she was born in 1955 in Arizona in a very conservative and strict household. In high school, Diane kind of went off the rails because like many kids who grow up in strict households, she had that had to spend that pent-up energy somewhere, and yeah, yeah. she certainly did. When she was 14, she began going by Diane and kind of changed her look, and she, from what I realize or from what I gather, she really wanted to fit in with the cooler crowd at school, and they weren't really accepting her, so this was her in an effort to join that crowd. She was not allowed to date, but she was boy crazy. She found a boyfriend at her school who was older, a boy named Steve Downs. After graduation, dirty (laughs) Diane. Wait, I just realized this is my second Diane. The first episode was Diane Schuler. Yep. And this is my second Diane. And both involve kids and cars. Kids and cars. Getting coffee. Like comedians and cars I love it. <laughs> Hold on. Marissa just texted me like some insane news. Sorry. Someone we know is pregnant. I'm not going to say who it is, but wild. Oh, there's a little bit of pregnancy in my mystery today. Ooh, pregnancy. Woo. Well, it's not actually, but you'll, you'll find out. <laughs> I just cheered pregnancy. Like <laughs> I know what that means. I've never you won't, been you won't be cheering whenever I tell you about it. I've never been pregnant. Okay. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so let the after- record stand. <laughs> Grace is I was been wrong. Pregnant. I was wrong about Cedric Dickory, and I've never been pregnant. <laughs> Put that on merch. That's what we need. T shirt yeah. that says I was wrong about Cedric Dickory and I've never been pregnant. <laughs> I think they're related, honestly. <laughs> oh man. Okay. So after graduation, Steve joined the Navy and Diane attended Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College. Say that 10 times fast, which like, in my opinion, does not seem like a good fit. And it wasn't for her. Uh, Steve and Diane agreed to stay together, but Diane was not faithful to him, which is a theme in her life during their time apart and was eventually expelled from Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College for promiscuous behavior. Dirty Diana, indeed. Yes. When she realized she'd need to move back in with her parents, she and Steve decided to run away and get married, and they did in 1973. Steve and Diane fought a lot, especially about Diane's cheating and financial and other financial issues. 
Despite this, in 1974, the couple had their first child, Christy Ann. A short time later, Diane left to join the Navy, leaving Steve alone with six-month-old Christy. She left after just three weeks of basic training, citing the reason for her departure as extreme blisters. Whatever. (laughs) I mean, you got to take care of your feet. Can't get trench foot. Later in an interview, she would claim that she suspected Steve was neglecting Christy Ann, and that's why she returned, which is just bullshit. In 1976, they have another child named Cheryl Lynn, and I think Steve was done with Diane's shit because he had a vasectomy after Cheryl Lynn's birth. But, like, super awkward, because only a short time later, Diane was pregnant again, (laughs) exposing one of the many alleged affairs she had. Diane had an abortion. is definitely a a power move. Yeah. Oh, for sure. He said, nah. 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 I wonder if she knew about the vasectomy. Because that's always wild if, like, because I've heard about that, where men think their wife is cheating on them or their partner, and they get a vasectomy, and then the woman gets pregnant. It's wild. Yeah. But like, I don't know. She has to know because there's like a recovery to it. I don't know. She's got. Is there? I don't know. Anyway, so Diane had an abortion and for some reason the couple decided to stay together anyway, even though now it's out in the open that she was cheating and they moved to Mesa, Arizona. Diane became involved with several co-workers at her new place of work and became pregnant again. The lady is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, but you can't say she ain't fertile because she really is. She gave birth to Stephen Daniel later that year, nicknamed Danny. And even though Steve knew Danny wasn't his, he claims he stayed with Diane so that the children could grow up with two parents. However, Keep it together for the kids. Yep. In 1980, he gave up that motto and left her. Oh, so, okay. We'll keep it together over the, for the years kids for a little bit and then until 1980 and then Yeah. Yeah. Um Over the years, Diane continued sexual relationships with a number of partners, but when Steve left, she sought other ways to provide for her children. She decided she would apply to a surrogacy program to become a surrogate. In order to become a surrogate, you need to pass a number of physical and mental tests, including psychiatric exams. Diane failed two of the evaluations, (laughs) with one exam even noting that she was likely psychotic, and yet they admitted her into the program anyway. Oh. (laughs) She gave birth the need to for another. Surrogates is so high, you know. Yes, for sure. Um, she gave birth to another child in 1982 and received ten thousand dollars for this. At the time, she was dating a married but separated co-worker named co-worker named Robert Knickerbocker, also called Nick for short. And Diane was absolutely infatuated with him, saying he was the love of her life. She was obsessed with him. Blah blah blah. Robert, however, broke it off, and he claims to this day he maintains that the reason was he had no interest in raising her children and generally didn't like kids, so he left Diane and she was devastated. Okay. Dang. This is the catalyst for all the crazy shit that goes down. Diane was crushed after Nick left her and obviously believed her kids to be the reason he left her. You may see where this is going. Okay. Mm-hmm. She wrote Robert countless letters and in the meantime moved her kids to Cottage Grove, Oregon, though she remained obsessed with Robert in the meantime. She would often leave her kids with her parents, with their father, or sometimes even alone with six-year-old Christy in charge. Kind of fucked. Well, yeah. Moving on. Babysitting fun. Well, it's like John Mulaney said that, (laughs) talked about babysitters and like how it's like hiring a horse to watch your dog because like, People hire 
like a babysitter that's only like a few years older than their oldest kid. <laughs> right, right. And it's such a good point because it's like how you think that your babysitter is so old when you're young and they're just not that much older usually. Do you, so, do you, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent here. Yeah. But do you remember how, uh, when, when you were of age to where, well, you had siblings too, but I did age to where your parents let I you do. stay home alone, like by yeah. yourself. Yeah. I, I had to do that during the summer and like right whenever I got off school and man, the food I would cook is just hilarious. Like, I think yeah. I would eat just straight up like, uh, I would just make myself plates of nachos with just shredded cheese on uh, yep. tortilla chips. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things we used to do was um, make a hot dog sandwich, which is just Wonder Bread with ketchup and then a hot dog. Like cold hot dog? <laughs> Probably. We weren't allowed to uh, use anything in the stove or the oven or microwave or whatever. So we just probably a cold hot dog. Uh, isn't just that a gross? cold, wet dog with ketchup. Nasty. Yeah. Yeah. Or so hey, but you many you got to do what you got to do. Like, like growing, growing bodies. <laughs> right. When, when you're hung like that, you got to eat what you, what you can, you know? I thought you said when you're hung like that. I was like, gross. No, when you're young like that. <laughs> oh, no. I, I guess you got to eat a lot, too, if you're hung like that. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, you got another limb to provide for. <laughs> a limb. <laughs> Jesus. All right, back <laughs> to the case. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so moving on to the main event. Thursday, oh. May 19th, 1983. Diane and her kids are leaving a friend's house late at night around 9.30 p.m. Christy was eight, Cheryl was seven, and Danny was three. Cheryl was up front with Diane and Danny and Christy... Blah, 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 blah. Cheryl was up front with Diane... And Danny and Christy were in the back seat. Now, the rest of the story is Diane's account of what happened. So oh, okay. all of this is based on her story, the story she told um, medical, the, the people, the court, the authorities, people police. at the hospital, blah, right. blah, blah. She had been driving for a while with Hungry Like the Wolf by Duran Duran playing on the radio when she encounters <laughs> a man standing in the middle of the road flagging down the car. Remember, this is around 10 p.m. at night. They're in Oregon, in bumfuck Oregon, and this is a rural road. And so naturally, it's nighttime. She's got her kids in the car. With anything. She really asserts that that's the, that's the song that was playing. So, All right. And well, I have a funny tidbit head. about that later. So right. naturally, it's night. She's got her kids in the car. So she stops to help this strange man on the side exactly. of the road. Exactly. Right. she should do. She pulls over, sees the kids are sleeping in the back, and gets out of the car, which, by the way, her story says the kids are all in the back seat, but the beginning of the story says that Christy was in the front seat. So that's one detail okay. that I'm like, I didn't see anyone note, it, note anything about that, but I do think it's weird. She pulls over, sees the kids are sleeping in the back, and gets out of the car to help this, quote, bushy-haired stranger, at which point he says to her, I want your car. She replies, you've got to be kidding me. At which point he leans into the car and just begins firing. Firing okay. a gun? A gun. Yes, I should have been Jesus. that clear. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I was like, so he just starts blasting. <laughs> no, he just starts firing a gun into the car. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. He hits each of the three children multiple times. 
Diane struggles to fight him off and he ends up shooting her in the left forearm. She fakes throwing the keys in a bush to create a diversion. She manages to distract him. Then runs runs back to the car and drives away. Okay. She jukes him out of his shoes, basically. Yes. Yes. (laughs) According to Diane's account, at this point, she's driving wildly, she says, like a lunatic, speeding to the hospital. Understandable, right? I mean, your kids are in need of critical medical care. By the time she reached the hospital, seven-year-old Cheryl was already dead, and Christy and Danny were both in critical condition. Christy had been shot twice in the chest, and Danny had been shot in the back. Both were clinging to life. The bullet had struck Diane's arm and had shattered her radius, but obviously her injuries were shockingly minor compared with her children's, which immediately raised red flags. Yeah. This in conjunction with Diane's chilling lack of emotion or grief over the death of one child and critical injury of two more led investigators or led medical professionals to contact the police. Right. And they set their sights on her pretty early on because We've talked about this a lot on the podcast. It's a common theme in true crime that there's always like one person that doesn't react the way they're supposed to. And of course, everyone immediately turns suspicion on them. But in this case, like every single person who interacted with her that night and afterwards says she was emotionally completely flat. And I'll say one thing she said about the car later. That's kind of creepy. So they begin to interview Diane. She's showing a lack of emotion And she's described as emotionless by both police and doctors. Another thing that investigators noticed was that Diane had a towel carefully wrapped around her arm. This was not initially odd, except that no visible attempt had been made to compress the wounds of any of her children. And the towel wrapped around her arm would later prove to be the only one in the car that night. This concludes that she wrapped her own wound rather than her children's, which is weird. Um, furthermore, the interior of the car was entirely covered in blood, yet Diane had little to no blood on her other than the one from, from her own wound. In addition, law enforcement recalls being like super creeped out by the fact that Diane seemed most upset. She's like, God, my car is just ruined. That's what she said. Jeez. Yeah. Because this was a new car. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. Um, She's informed that Cheryl is dead and that Danny was paralyzed from the waist down and her behavior upon hearing the news just furthered police suspicion because it's just completely like, okay, what else? You know, Mm. Diane called Robert or Nick, Robert Knickerbocker from the hospital. But as far as we know, she did not call Steve or Danny's father. After the story hit the news, the public was understandably alarmed and on the lookout for Diane's vicious attacker with women and mothers with young children in particular on constant alert when driving at night. Christy had a stroke and was unable to communicate, so the only witness of the attack was Diane. Police had no choice to listen, but to listen to Diane's version of events, and she was very outspoken in the media at this time. In the days following the attack, police receive a call from one witness who has a chilling account of what happened that night. This is, like, to me, the most disturbing... Ugh. Okay, so remember that Diane said she was driving like a lunatic, like speeding yeah yeah speeding she's trying to get the hospital fast right this one witness and this is backed up later by a dozen witness stories recalls seeing diane's vehicle that night but it was not driving quickly in fact the car was moving so slowly that the witness driving behind diane recalls the speed not even registering on his speedometer so slowly so she was driving under five miles an hour 
to the oh, hospital. Dang. Jeez. Doesn't that give you chills? Uh, uh yeah, because I mean, she's letting her. It sounds like she's letting her kids die. Yes, she's letting her children bleed out. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, when later when they told her that Danny was paralyzed, but he was alive, she seemed kind of surprised and no one really realized why. Four days after the attack, Diane walks investigators through a reenactment of what happened. Now, this footage is pretty famous and I'll have it linked in the show notes. And Trevor, I encourage you to watch it another time, too. It's disturbing as fuck. I have to be honest. Like I said, this is only a few days after the alleged attack, and Diane's demeanor is troubling, to say the least. She's uh, laughing in the whole reenactment and seems very relaxed, even seen at one point the law enforcement guy is, like, talking to the camera, and she's in the background in the car, sitting in the car, and she's, like, primping her hair in the mirror, uh-uh. which people are like, Ugh, right? Yeah. Um The strangest part of the video, in my opinion, is when Diane mimes throwing the keys and she's like kind of laughing. She's like, and then I throw the keys and she's laughing in the bush, then quickly climbs in the driver's seat, hitting her her elbow, which is in a cast. She hits her arm against the door jam, like the outside of the door. And she goes, I just hit my cast. And she's like laughing. And then when she gets out, she goes, this is almost as worse as... And then she stops. Or this is almost worse than, and then she cuts, she like catches herself and stops. Uh Uh-oh. So a lot of people think that she was about to say, this is almost worse than when I shot myself. That's what a lot of people think that she's about to say, but she never finished her sentence. So super spooky. Okay. Very spooky. As she shared her story, public opinion of her began to wane with just about everyone questioning her judgment as a mother and feeling disturbed by her lack of emotion. So she did the opposite of what a guilty person should have done in this scenario, which is she would not shut her fucking mouth. She was doing interview after interview, appearing in the media, really, really wanting to set the narrative yeah, straight. Yeah, like, is she just, like, hopelessly, like, aloof at all times? Like, is she just a little insane like i don't know oh we'll talk about how she's very insane we'll talk about that investigators get permission to search diane's residence and they discover dozens of letters addressed to robert knickerbocker as well as diaries written in almost daily professing her desperate love for him experts from the beginning were shocked that diane made such a strong effort early on to maintain a media presence and set the narrative right away She's just making things worse for herself at this point and digging herself in a hole as the story gets more and more outrageous. In one interview, Diane... So now I have a series of, like, crazy quotes from her. Like, these are real things Uh. that she said verbatim. Here we go. Quote, If I had shot my own children, would I not have done a good job of it? Why would I have taken my kids to the hospital? Wouldn't I have made sure they were dead and then cried crocodile tears? That's insane to think that I would do such a thing and then bring the witnesses against myself. That's crazy. That's one quote. Yeah. Then she says, Christy woke up. And as I say, she may be the only one to get me out of this. Would I have brought her to the hospital? Wouldn't she be the one that I make sure is dead? There are too many holes in it. (laughs) This is something else chilling. Even though Christy couldn't speak following the stroke, the nurses took note of the way her vitals spiked every time her mother came into the room. Oh, yeah. I'd be afraid Terrifying. of it. Terrifying. Yep. Oh, uh, yeah. In another interview, this is another crazy quote. Diane says, quote, 
Everyone keeps telling me, oh, you're so lucky. Well, I don't feel very lucky. I couldn't tie my damn shoes for a month. It was so painful. It is still so painful. The scar is going to be there for the rest of my life. I'm going to remember that night for the rest of my life, whether I'd like to or not. I think my kids were lucky. If I had been shot the way they had, we all would have died. Oh, so the, the most inconvenient thing is that she can't tie her shoes. Yes. Not, not that her that child is dead. Three, what? what yes. Two or three children? One child and one's paralyzed from the waist down. One is in the ICU. She'd had a stroke. Still Uh, unable to communicate. Like so sick. Though Diane denied owning a 22 caliber handgun, which was the weapon. Several people who knew her recalled seeing one and it was later confirmed that she had purchased one. And I'll get into the ballistics when I talk about the trial. Yeah. When she's brought in for a second interview and confronted with this new evidence police have gathered, Diane changes her story, which never a good idea, right? No, no. People were already doubting her. So I love this. Lead detective Welsh, I didn't get his first name, but that's his last name, says, your story stinks, Diane. And she says, then you better get some deodorant. <laughs> oh my God. She's a media Wild. <laughs> Honest to God, right? She yeah. needs no media coaching. By the way, like, Several interviewers Does she are ever like, get a lawyer. That, that, okay, like, hey, so hey, Diane, shut it. Yeah, so she did have a lawyer. She did not have a lawyer present in any of her interrogations, nor during any of her media interviews. Which is like, if you're a suspected suspected of any crime and you appear in the media, you're supposed to have your lawyer present, or you're allowed to at least. And right. she didn't. She neglected to have a lawyer until her actual trial, which like too lit, too little, too late, you know. I got to be honest, she may have gotten away with it had she not, had she like had some sort of legal representation, but. Yeah. I mean, if she wouldn't have kept saying all this weird outlandish stuff, like. Yeah. Because people people bought her story at first. Also, like, I should say she may have gotten away with it if she wasn't a fucking psychopath, because I'll talk about how mentally ill she is. And like the fact that she wasn't reacting when her children died like that, that also set suspicion on her. And that wouldn't have mattered if she was. (laughs) had a lawyer or not she's a little insane exactly she's cuckoo Um, for cocoa puffs dude cuckoo for cocoa puffs dude yep that's right so she says now this is her new story that there were two men who flagged her down that night she thinks they knew her because they called her by name she says one man was staring at her with a face of stone and the other was smoking a cigarette and pacing at 90 miles an hour that's what she says which i just that made me laugh what does that look like what that's what she said Pacing, you can't pace at 90, at miles, 90 an miles an hour. <laughs> the interview lasts an hour and a half, and by the end, Diane begins to get frustrated, eventually saying something along the lines of, Fuck you, you can chase your tails around for the next 20,000 years, and when you need my help, you can fuck it because I know he did it. Jeez. I know who did it. Huh. Yeah. Oh, so she knows who did it. Okay, good. Yeah, okay. And they're like, You know, they're like, You know who did it. And she says, I know who did it by name. And that she remembers the man yanking her arm out of the car, shooting it and saying, now try to get away with it, bitch. And then she's like, and I'm leaving because I know who did it. Bye. And then storms out of the interrogation room. Oh, my God. Which is just like giving someone it's it's giving like someone who's been caught in a lie. And so she goes like so many lies. Right. But she's like, I know who did it. Of course I do. Bye. (laughs) I don't know. It's just wild. What is this lady? She's insane. So Danny and Christy are placed in protective custody. Like they were never returned to her custody, which at least the state did something right there. Good. 
Good. Uh, police suspicion is mounting and Christy begins working with therapists and psychologists to gradually help her to gather her memories about that night and be able to communicate as she's the key to this entire case, right? Because right now they can't convict Diane for any reason because there's some ballistic evidence that's yet to be um, authenticated. And then there's also the witness testimony, which the only witness testimony they have right now is hers, is Diane's. So right. they're and, waiting and she for she can Christy. say all this crazy shit, but until like, right. you can prove it with evidence, I yes. mean, she can say all the stuff that she wants. Yes, exactly. On his podcast, Cult Leader, Spencer Henry ta- speaks about one therapist method, which involved Christy writing who she knew to be responsible on a piece of paper, sealing it in an envelope, then burning it. And they did this repeatedly until Christy felt ready to reveal what was written on the paper. The point of this I'm learning is like, so that she could be certain, they could be certain that this was who did it without it being coerced, I guess. I think that was kind of the exercise. I don't know what the burning it accomplished, but I mean, I don't if know. you're, if you're going to maintain a lie, then you just write the lie. Right. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. But okay. to, sure. to be fair, she's eight. So she's probably not lying about anything. You know, she's eight. Right. So they do this over and over again until Christy finally says, I'm ready to read the paper. I'm ready for us to read the paper. They open the envelope. The final paper contains two words, my mom. Uh, (sighs) It gives me like, (laughs) police arrested Diane Downs on February 28th, 1984. A few months later in May, her trial is set to begin. Trevor, I put a photo of Diane approaching the courthouse on the drive. Take a look and tell the ghoul friends what you notice about our friend Diane. I'm scared. Um, okay. She's smiling and, um, I think she's like six or seven months pregnant. She's pregnant. She's fucking pregnant. She loves to be pregnant though. Yep. Oh, she loves it. A lot of people theorize that she uses pregnancy to get what she wants, um, and manipulate people. And this, uh, most people, you know, the general consensus about this particular pregnancy was that it was to garner sympathy from the jury, but I think it actually had the opposite effect because it was like, you know, basically she was saying like, I got pregnant, look what a good mom I am. But then it's like, I don't know. It just kind of made her look crazy because she's not, you know, she's about to all times to try to welcome a life into the world. Like now. Exactly. Yeah. Like now, right. like you're, you're having such a good time that you're just like, I'm a, I'm a try to have a kid. Yeah. Um, a scary moment during the trial happens when they play hungry, like the wolf in court to confirm that oh, this, no. <laughs> it's just, this is the song that her children, she believed died. at the time well, her children died. Right. She right. was supposedly killing her children too. Right. And right. at this point she's trying to proclaim her innocence. So this was, the song that was playing when she watched a man shoot and kill her children. Diane starts and Trevor, you can see me. They can't, but she starts going like, and like mouthing the oh, words and tapping dancing her feet and singing and long? dancing. Yep. Uh, uh-uh. uh-uh. no, absolutely not. She, she's baddie. Isn't that fucked? That's I, I think she, 
it's like her her angle here is just to be as crazy and unpredictable as possible. Yes. Because she's achieving it. I don't think there's any pattern. Like No, I don't think she the, was meaning to be this random and this like and, not appropriate. So there's a um there's a TV miniseries starring Farrah Fawcett um, <laughs> that came out in the 90s uh, or 80s, sorry, um, that's about this case where she plays Diane Downs. And they're doing that scene where she's like, you know, bopping to this song in court and her lawyer just like puts his hand on her hand like, <laughs> like, like, stop, please, stop. Please no. Please don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of experts say this was the moment that she lost the trial. Um, now, those who don't think it was that moment definitely think it was the next one where Christy arrives to testify in court. Oh. Yeah. When's the last eight, time that she's seen Christy? Eight years old. Good question. Like, it's got to be trial? a while. Like, they probably didn't allow her to, like, visit her. I don't know. I wouldn't have. Okay, shooting is May of 1983. And the trial is February of 1984. So I think it's been since that long. Okay. So it's been a while, but yeah, not that it matters Christy, to Diane. Yeah, Christy was not in her custody at that point. Um, yes. I forgot to mention a few pieces of evidence that were entered into the trial before I get to Christy's testimony. So a key piece of evidence in the trial was blood spatter that was actually found on the outside of the car. And this matched... Cheryl Downs, the the oh. child who was unfortunately deceased. Right. So this leads investigators to believe that Cheryl Downs was actually outside of the car when she was fatally shot. So gotcha. what they believe is that Cheryl, when her mom started shooting, Cheryl got out of the car, tried to escape, and her mom shot her outside of the car. That's why there's blood spatter outside of the car. Jeez. Ugh. Um. So this also dismantles Diane's story of a shooter leaning in. There is ballistic right. evidence that links shell casings found at the crime scene and bullets found at Diane's home. They confirm that all the bullets had at one time been in the same gun, a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol that still has not been found. But they did confirm that it came from the same gun that was registered to yeah. Diane. And instead yeah. of me throwing the keys in on the side of the road, I threw the gun on the side of the road. Right. <laughs> exactly it's possible maybe that's what she yeah. is but i'm sure they combed that area i would think so they had to have i mean up and down that road it would have to be so they do call the witness who said she was uh driving really slowly that night but the most important moment in the trial was when now nine years old christy downs took the stand she said her mom stopped the car got something from the trunk knelt on the front seat then shot cheryl danny and me the uh prosecutor oh. asks who shot Cheryl? And she says, my mom. How do you know that? I watched. Yeah, she was there. Ugh. God, it just gives me... Ugh. Reporter Ann Yeager believes that Diane thought her being pregnant would garner sympathy and help jurors see that she loved children. In the end, it had the opposite effect. A jury unanimously found Diane Downs guilty in June of 1984. Diane showed no emotion when she was convicted. And as she's escorted from the courthouse, she looks at the cameras outside and shrugs. I don't know. What is there to say? Jeez. Only 10 days so after now the trial. She changes her tune. Like, oh, I mean, yeah. it's whatever. By the way, she was nine months pregnant at the trial. So 
Only 10 days after the trial, Diane's That's fifth biological child was born and she was taken in by the state. Diane was removed from the hospital and taken back to jail. She was officially evaluated and diagnosed with three separate personality disorders, histrionic personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, and antisocial personality disorder. I can't say that. Personality disorder. Personality but honestly, disorder. What a cocktail of disorders, but honestly, it had to have been something pretty crazy. Yeah, no. And and a, a lot of people also think she's a sociopath. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, so, I can see it. The most famous book that's been written about this case is a book called Small Sacrifices by um, a super famous true crime writer named Anne Rule. And Anne Rule does believe Diane is a sociopath with no compassion and zero capacity capacity for empathy. A judge would later sentence Diane to life in prison plus an additional 50 years. Christy and Danny were actually adopted by the prosecutor following the sentencing hearing. And Diane's new baby was adopted and renamed Becky Babcock. They kept the identity of her birth mother a secret, and the mother recalls that they subconsciously watched for signs of anything unusual given Diane's extremely disturbed mental state. So they're watching Becky kind of as she's growing up, like, is she going to end up like her mom? She didn't. But if you want to see, (laughs) if you want to hear more about Becky's story, the last like 20 minutes or so of the ABC 2020 documentary about this case, and I'll have it linked in the show notes is really focuses on Becky's story and like how she tried to get in contact with her mom and how she found out. And it's very interesting. And Diane writes her some batshit letters that I don't have time to talk about, but it's pretty wild. That's crazy. So three years into her sentence in June of 1987, Diane scales a 16 foot fence, jumps down, hides under a car, removing her shirt she manages to get a ride about a mile away. She fucking escaped from the Oregon Women's Correctional Center. Oh my god! Wanted posters are hung. <laughs> yeah, she's been doing some push-ups in the cell. Yeah, I don't know who the fuck is watching her, but like, someone needs to get on her because obviously she's been she's been on her Linda Hamilton shit and her yeah. the angry pull-ups. <laughs> yeah, she, okay, she just so, got jacked and scaled a sixteen foot wall. And then just and they goes think topless that asking she for was, a ride. Yeah, so I think that she took off her shirt, which, by the way, they found the shirt under the car that she hid under, and the shirt was one that she had worn in a TV interview, which is how they knew that she Holy took crap. off her shirt. Yeah. Jeez. Um. So wanted posters are hung in fourteen different states. There was a fear that she would come for her children, either Christy and Danny or Becky. She came to the door of a house owned by a man named Wayne Schieffer, who fucking kills me, this guy. He says, uh, she did not introduce herself as Diane Downs, per se, but as a girl with no clothes on, which that was enough of an introductory for me. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I get what he's saying, but like, come on, man. Do you have to bring everything back to the point that she's not wearing a shirt? Like, and then he knew weird. He knew who she was. He said he recognized her almost immediately, and that she was not hiding who she was either. She was like very open. Um, one detective finds a clue in Diane's cell. He realizes that there is an indentation on a piece of paper on a clipboard in her cell, and this indentation, when held up to the light. It turns out to be a map that leads them directly to the house where she's staying. So what they think happened 
is she was questioning another inmate. She was planning her escape for a while, but she was questioning another inmate about where her husband lived because the inmate was like, oh, my husband lives nearby. And she goes, okay, where does your husband live? And had her draw a map on the paper, which she used. So they found the indentation on a piece of paper in herself and they led them directly to the house where she was staying. Right. So you have like a pad of paper and the top layer, you you draw the map and the second layer is just kind of like indented. Right. She had kind of, she had kind of sequestered herself in a bedroom with a man. They're not sure who's, who the man was. Um, But she comes out wearing a men's shirt and boxer shorts. And Wayne Schieffer said that she had been planning. (laughs) They said that she had been planning to um, like suicide by cop with a BB gun for some reason, like come out holding a BB gun. And he was like, just go peacefully. Like you just need to, you know. And so she uh, went into police custody and she's moved to a more secure facility in California where she remains to this day. And she continues to maintain her innocence. She was denied parole three times. And I think she's up again in 2025, but I don't think anyone thinks it's going to happen, obviously. Oh, man. That's, that's it, so man. crazy. That's insane. Crazy. A real crazy. Crazy. Crazy for me. Gosh, some Patsy Cline. Hungry like the wolf. It is a bop, but maybe not dance to it next time you're in Yeah, and not when you're on trial for the murder of your children, you know? Oh my gosh. Wasn't that a wild ride? Yeah, like, I, it's like, I don't know where it went wrong, or where she just (laughs) got the idea to kind of snap and kill her kids. Yeah, it's, well, the whole theory is that she wanted this man who she couldn't have, and her kids were the one thing standing in her way of having him in her mind. Oh, no, I, I see what you mean. Because like, so he was she, like, no, I don't want to raise your kids. And she's like, all right, well, then I won't have any kids. Right. That's fine. That's fine. I can get rid of them. You know, yeah, no like worries. that was kind of oh, I'll get right on that, Mr. <laughs> Knickerbocker. Yeah. And then, of course, he was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. And they never. There's a couple red flags. Yeah. <laughs> couple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, you see a picture of her, by the way, like she's, she's wild. Histrionic personality disorder is really interesting. The little I know about it is like basically using, um, excessively promiscuous or sexually inappropriate behavior to manipulate others and get your way. Um, Mm. and I think that that definitely checks out. Yeah, it definitely does. And the fact that she was like, so she she attempts to murder her kids yeah and then gets pregnant afterwards like right what what guy was like i believe you girl like it's all good (laughs) and right just decides to like continue i don't know i don't understand the relationship after you meet someone you're like you got on a date it's like oh who are you oh my name is diane and uh (laughs) you know I've been uh, not convicted, yeah. but uh, what indicted on charges of yeah. attempted murder and yeah, like what? So or you the do guy, just a, qu- a quick look at the news, and you're like, oh, that's who I hooked up with last night. Yeah, so they found out that she, because everyone obviously her face is everywhere. They knew her, like, so that she was a postal worker. I didn't mention that, but she was, and so okay. she actually seduced a man on her mail route. Oh, yeah. 
Nice. And that was who, that's the father of, they like found out that was the father of the, of Becky Babcock, the true father. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'm I'm like tweaking right now. Or like, I'm just scared because Scarlett says she's coming home early and sometimes our doorbell goes out like our door cam and I don't know when she's going to come home. So I'm just ready for her to come up behind me and scare the ever living (laughs) shit out of me. Why don't you shut the door? Because that's even worse. <laughs> then I won't hear her coming. You've got but your anyway, noise canceling on? Yeah. Anyway, Grace, that's an awesome case. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Great case, Grace. Are you ready for my mystery? Yay! Well, too bad it's not necessarily a mystery because oh. it's a cult. <gasps> I'm doing a cult today. Yeah! And we're going to do a deep dive on the cult and the leader of the cult. And the cult I am covering today is the Ahill Kids. Mm, Have you ever heard, heard of, of them? No. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, it's, I don't know anything, it's though. A, it's a Canadian cult. Um, and so we're headed, headed back to Canada. <laughs> back to Canada. Shout, shout out to Robert Picton. Oh, Coming fuck back. Robert Picton. Fuck Robert Picton and Diane Downs and Jameson Bachman and all of the other people. Yeah, everybody that. needs to get get it together, man. Yeah. Uh, why are we out here hurting people? Stop Anyways. getting pregnant. <laughs> Let's get right into it. Okay. <laughs> the Ant Hill Kids cult is under the leadership of, I'm going to pronounce this right, everything's kind of French, so you all are going to have to bear with me. And I don't mean kind of French, it's like they're, they're French Canadian. So it's definitely going to be a little bit of a struggle. But the Ant Hill's cult, Ant Hill Kids cult, was under the leadership of Rosh Ter- Terio, which is spelled like Thoreau or, or Theriault, and Ro- uh, Roche or Rosh is spelled like R O C H. So it's it's a little little confusing. Ter- but it's like T H E with an accent R I A U L T. Rosh. Okay. All right. I trust you. Rosh Terio. So I tried. But anyway, Rosh Terrio <laughs> was born on May 16, 1947 in Quebec, Canada to a French-Canadian family and raised in Thetford Mines. Um, his mother and father's name was Hyacinth and Pierrette okay. Terrio. He was the second of seven children and the, the oldest boy. So we headed back to Canada, boys and girls. Yeah. Strap in, because this one... This one it takes a turn and I kind of want to go through his early life a little bit because he's kind of a normal person up until a certain point. I'll, I'll get to that. Okay. But uh, as a child, uh, Terrio was um, considered to be very intelligent, but he dropped out of school in the seventh grade and began to teach himself the old Testament and the Bible. And several accounts say that, I mean, the town's local school went up to the seventh grade um this is like back in you know the 60s so it's it's not uncommon for like a rural town to just have like a one schoolhouse and maybe it only goes up to a certain point so right went up to the seventh grade that's whenever he dropped out wasn't necessarily um his fault though but it's just where his school went to and none of the um terrio kids went any further not even uh roche who was bright outgoing and seeming seemingly to enjoy learning and just a very intelligent individual 
Um, but he was speculated to have a problem with authority, but uh, uh, that was a little bit debated in my sources, especially whenever he was young. Okay. Um, Terrio believed that um, from himself, like teaching himself the Old Testament of the Bible, he believed that the end of the world was near and would be brought on by like a war between good and evil. Mm-hmm. So there would be a war between good and evil, and that was basically how the world would just fall into an apocalyptic state. That checks out. <laughs> he was also drawn to the happening. old. T- yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> I mean, come on. There's a lot of uh, well, Revelations is in the New Testament, but there's a lot of like prophecy and things in the Old Testament that are all a little crazy. Oh, I don't know. Anyway, there's some homework. Um, okay. He was also drawn to the Old Testament's like strict code of masculine authority. Basically, how like all men are given yeah. a certain authority from god and yeah some some fun toxic masculinity and he was like awesome. yeah I'm, I'm a dude i like that sounds good um and also he started taking a little having some tendencies uh in even though his childhood wasn't bad at all he would often complain about it and exaggerate it to other people in order to m- manipulate them into giving him attention and to garner sympathy mm. from them so, you know, starting to manipulate people early on. A little bit more about his childhood. His mom was a laborer and also devoutly religious. She was a member of the Union of Electors, which has a French name that I'm not going to try. But they okay. were nicknamed the White Berets on account of their signature mission uniform. Um, it's basically like a Catholic uh, fascist offshoot of like Depression era, some sort of movement from like the 30s. Okay. Um, but it's like the Catholic per- uh, portion of that. But anyway, um, him and her, his mother and his father were basically um, in that sort of movement and forced um, Roche to go to Catholic Mass. And also, he was forced to accompany his father on like forced door to door distribution of white beret literature campaigns, basically just to try to get more people <laughs> Jehovah's uh, to understand. Witness. Yeah, but like with a fascist twist. Oh. <laughs> Fascism. That's their merch. Jehovah's Witness, yeah. but with a fascist twist. Twist. Fuck, <laughs> I fucked it up. Uh, that, that, is good. that is some good merch. Um, but he basically, <laughs> having being forced to go to mass and being forced to do these campaigns where he would go door to door, made him develop a, well, he then developed a hatred for Catholicism in particular and mm. re- organized religion in general um, a- as that goes on. So, you know, don't force your kids to do things. Yeah. It, it makes them into cult leaders. <laughs> but- yeah, or it makes them crazy enough to kill their kids because Diane was also raised in that kind of environment. Fun, fun. Yeah. So we're going to get into a little story. On November 11th, 1967, uh, he actually married someone. Uh, her name was Francine Grenier, a girl from the town over from, uh, you know, uh, what was it? Tet- tetra... Thetford Mines. <laughs> tetra Hypercar- No, Thetford Mines. <laughs> uh, he married a girl from the next town over. They moved to Montreal. And basically, in over the next three years to 1970, uh, she... I don't like the way I put this. I said she bore him two sons, but they had two children. <laughs> <laughs> and their names are kind of cool. Um, Roche Sylvain, which is like Roche Jr. 
and um, Francois. Francois nailed it. Uh, and during this time, basically <laughs> Roche Senior, uh, Roche Terrio, um, uh-huh. the daddy, developed the some severe ulcers in his stomach and had to be Damn. like excised surgically. And he later later developed complications with the surgery uh, and the persistent discomfort of his digestive system fostered certain <laughs> irritability on Terrio's part, um, basically making him <laughs> sound an familiar. Yeah. Every night. I don't know. I don't know what you're saying. No, the, uh, the, constant irrit- the constant irritation of your digestive system. I'm just irritable all the time because I got shit to do. I got I shit know. to shit. Yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of weird, but this kind of tipped off a little bit of a... Um, an interest with him because he also became obsessed with like medicine and taught himself about anatomy. So you can kind of see a theme here. Like he'll become obsessed about something, the old Testament, and then he kind of gets all in, all in there and tries to learn everything he can about it. Um, He did the same thing with medicine and, you know, tried to learn everything he could about anatomy, which is interesting. And that'll, that'll tie in later as to, as we uh, kind of spiral out of control um, here soon. So he also acquired a new interest in sex and sexuality, which uh, was not entirely appreciated by his wife or his (laughs) in-laws because it wasn't an interest in sex and sexuality with his wife. It was with other other people. His in-laws, other people. Other people. (laughs) So you can understand how that would be pretty bad. He would regularly go to Quebec City um, to cheat on on his wife with women he met there. Uh, mm-hmm. One particular one, which we referencing a lot in the story because she came, became a part of the cult is Giselle uh, or, Giz- or Giselle. I don't know. It's French. Oh. Hi, Scarlett. Hey, Scar. So one such At first I thought Giselle. Tilly was reacting to nothing and I was freaked the fuck out because all I saw was her big old tank head just going <laughs> like this. And I was like, yeah. Scarlet better fucking come around the corner or I'm going to freak out. <laughs> <laughs> She's protecting me, but not doing a good job. She just screams at, at the person. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so he would basically go on like little trysts or how do you say that? Trists? Trists? I think that's with, how you say women. it. Yeah, um, it's a fun word. And, you know, he was just spending money. He's out partying, you know, going to Quebec City, hitting up the nightlife. And right. uh, he frequented uh, a time with um, a woman he met there named Giselle. But yeah. eventually, he ran out of money, started draining the family's finances, and the local credit union uh, repossessed his residence. So he mm-hmm. had a mortgage started faulting on it and francine was like you know what i'm gonna wash my hands of this guy i'm out (laughs) and so she just kind of like left him uh i think they might have divorced i didn't see that in my notes but hopefully they did they may have just still been married it doesn't really matter to roche he he doesn't matter he or he doesn't care um and so then he started uh um to uh hook hooking up consistently with giselle and developing a relationship with her and living with her Mm. After Francine was like, all right, get out. Mm-hmm. Taking the kids. Leave me alone. Mm. And it was around about that time that Roche <laughs> Terrio discovered That's the seventh day. 
Yeah. In a minute, he oh, discovered yeah. the Seventh Day Adventist <laughs> Church. Doesn't really roll off the tongue. Yeah. I, and he'll be feeling fussy in his uh, cult slippers very soon. Cult roll off the slippers. Tongue. Ew. Yeah. So he discovered the Seventh Day Adventist Church, which is not Catholic. It's more of a Protestant church, I think. Um, the Adventists were ministered by a by a Guadalupean, okay, Guadalupean, named sure. Pierre Zita, Zita, and they met in a local motel room every Saturday. And Roche was their most devoted follower after he had discovered the church. He began following Adventist uh, nutritional structures, which one big thing of the Adventist church is that they don't uh, drink, they don't smoke, and they eat a very clean and healthy diet. Um, a like big Mormons. emphasis on yeah i think i think it has a lot with mormonism um yeah. i don't think they're mormons in that fact but it could you could draw a lot of parallels between the two no but with the um, diet the diet is what i mean yeah so he quit drinking uh he, di- he didn't drink anymore um and did smoke and started this healthy lifestyle and his enthusiasm for god's work began to unsettle the other Adventists in this church, and his boastfulness irritated those who knew of his, like, limited uh, education. Um, you know, he had this this large education, self-taught about um, the Old Testament, but he wasn't, like, an ordained minister. So um, I'm sure that ruffled some feathers, especially with Pierre, the uh, the minister of the church. Sorry, I burped. It's kind of loud. My bad. That's okay. Uh, you should go louder next time so we can all hear it. Okay. <laughs> Don't be shy. <laughs> you always encourage oh. me to speak my truth, and I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah. Burp, burp your truth, girl. Do what you gotta <laughs> do. Truth, girl. That's our other merch. Burp your burp truth. Burp your truth, girl. Spew <laughs> the truth out of your mouth hole. <laughs> so Terrio <laughs> converted from... <laughs> I'm trying to get through all seven of these pages. I'm man. sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's okay, it's okay. I like your banter, though. So, <clears throat> okay. I'm, I'm trying to get through some of the good stuff. So he converted to Catholicism from or from Catholicism to Seventh-day Adventist. Um, he then began selling uh, literature door-to-door, um, which gave him kind of an in with the Adventi- Adventist uh, people, um, and he excelled at it. So at this point, he was he was doing the Lord's work. People were liking it. He was making some money for the church, and he started to amass some followers. And all of these followers were under the age of 25 that I know of. Uh. And most of them were women because he's very charismatic. He's kind of like a, a, you know, I wouldn't say womanizer because at this point he wasn't like engaging in uh, relationships with them. He was just, I don't know, maybe a little fun to be around. Jim Jones. Yeah. Jim Jones, just uh, Jim Jones ish, I would say. Yeah. Um, Jim and uh, I have a note about that too. I hope I'll, uh, I think I'll be able to get into it because um, that happened around the same time yeah. as whenever he had his cult starting. Um, but uh, a couple of their names that you're going to hear throughout the, the thing, especially uh, a couple notable people, um, his fo- a couple of his followers' names were Solange, um, okay. Boy- Boilard. We're just going to go with Solange um chantal um i'm not gonna even try to do their last names that was a bad okay. was a bad call okay <laughs> that's fine uh, solange chantal um francine nicole maurice josie josie 
probably just Josie. Josie. Uh, and then you got Jacques, who was a he was a guy in his mid twenties. Wait, um, Francine as in his ex wife? No, this was a or different this was Francine. a new lady. Okay. Definitely, it was a new lady, and their ages were like 21, 19, 18, 20, 18. All these oh, girls were gross. like under twenty one. So um, it's like the Manson had, family, basically, just a bunch yeah. of uh, young young women yeah. uh, that enjoyed uh, Roche's company as well as a Ugh. couple dudes, uh, notably Jacques, uh, who was in his mid twenties, Claude, who was in who's twenty four, and um, there was another Jacques. So you got Jacques. F and then Jacques G, okay. but uh, you know one of the, one of them kind of pieces out real soon, so we're we're not going to be that confusing. Um, he, yeah, so so second Jacques had a wife and a six month old baby girl, and they were all kind of like down with the 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 Roche Terrio lifestyle. Yeah, and as well as Giselle was also one of the followers. She she's still in the picture. Okay, um, and you know a little teeth here. Um, Giselle would get. Very jealous of how the other women were obsessed with Roche. Giselleus. Giselleus. <laughs> it's a combina- combination of jealous and zealous. Giselle. Giselleus. And Giselle. Giselle. Uh-huh. I fucked it up. And, okay. So all of these ladies that yeah. were single were mm-hmm. technically still under the care of their parents, but they all... Like all of those people I just named, all like eight of those, eight of those followers and Roche and Giselle just kind of crashed at Giselle's place. Like yeah. just slept on the couches, hung out there as lo- as long as they were allowed to. And okay. a lot of them lived there with them that were supposed to be still living with their parents. Yeah. So uh, as you can imagine in a church, this is a little weird. Um, this kind of ragtag group of like uh, wayward youths, just kind of <laughs> being passionate about this guy who, you know, is very zealous and good at sell- going door to door and evangelizing. But, also, he starts doing some other things, um, which I'm going to get into now. So okay. he had a growing reputation as a healer and um, sympathetic connections with the Seventh-day Adventist health food and mission literature suppliers. Mm-hmm. So um, he was in with their supply chain in order to get health food. And then also people started thinking that he could heal like naturally if you had some cold, hard cash, of course. Right. Um, and in March of 1978, uh, right around here, when he started amassing the followers, it was around 1977. And, you know, about a year later, um, the Healthy Living Clinic was in full swing. There was a lady named Geraldine that was admitted to the Healthy Living Clinic. Um, she had been undergoing treatment for leukemia in Quebec City, and things seemed to be going well at the hospital. But uh, Geraldine's husband, ultimately fell in and drank the Kool-Aid of uh, Terrio. So to speak. So to speak. Um, Roche convinced uh, M- Mr. Auclair, uh Geraldine's husband, to let him visit Geraldine in the hospital, uh, where Roche got a, in a loud argument with the doctors over a matter of Ger- Geraldine's treatment, particularly with the number of drugs that they were giving her to mm. combat the leukemia. It was apparently going well. But Roche convinced her husband to check the 34 38-year-old cancer patient Geraldine out of the hospital and into the healthy living clinic where oh, Geraldine's fuck. own father was not even permitted to visit, so only her husband. Ugh. And Terrio's treatment for leukemia was grape juice and organic foods. Shut the fuck up. 
so uh it doesn't end well for geraldine she died the geraldine grape juice died didn't work the grape juice and organic foods didn't really work um okay. and roche told his followers that he had gone into her room and kissed her and she awakened from death but uh-huh. that in the end you know and I, i've heard this a lot of times when god wants people he takes him right and it was just geraldine's time oh so that, even man. though i even though i resurrected her uh it was just her time and when god wants people he just takes them right so he just yeah. he told people that he resurrected her anyway that, i thought that was wild yikes grape juice and organic foods <laughs> Yeah, oh, when grape no. juice and organic foods doesn't work, you know, you just you just make out with a corpse and you can resurrect them from death. Uh, uh, yeah. uh. <laughs> so interesting. Inter- interestingly, uh, later on that spring, um, about two months later, Giselle, who was now pregnant, and she was also feeling rejected continuously by the lack of attention that Roche gave her since their marriage, gave her yeah. a new husband. Gave her new husband an ultimatum. She doesn't seem like a good candidate for polygamy, if you ask me. No, she really doesn't. And I don't I don't understand, but I think after a while, like everyone just puts their lives in the hands of this man and she was like one of the very first ones to do that. Right. So she she she's just down with whatever happens. And um here's an example <laughs> of, of that. She gave him an ultimatum. She's she was like, you know what? I'm I'm gonna stand up to him. Either he breaks up the commune he has with all of his followers, uh, who are just camping out at Giselle's house with Jacques, Solange and and the like, or and and encourages them to find new homes, or she's gonna just move back in with her father and just end this whole thing. Um Roche's answer was to just punch her in the mouth and forbid her to ever leave the, the room in their house for two days. Yikes. So, you know, uh, Giselle like, was like, all right, that's good. fine. Yeah, Giselle's like, okay, well, fella. I'm not going to think about doing that anymore. Yeah. Aww. Um, And she stays. Ugh. So, later on in 1978, Roche was voted out of the Seventh-day Adventist church that he was attending, per Pierre Zita, because of uh, Roche's healthy living clinic and his massing of loyal followers. So, like, the controversy... Yeah about people dying in the clinic and the like um the uh the youth that were starting to follow it follow him uh mm. pierre was like okay we're gonna vote this guy out and the church decided to okay and that his his constant talk about how the end times are near didn't really <laughs> help either so they they at some point the adventist church had enough of him and good for them yeah but in the summer of, of 1978 in spite of its financial success, success which was the Healthy Living Clinic, was making a ton of money, it faced some serious problems. Hmm. So at first, there were some outstanding debts that people hadn't paid, um, as well as debts that they had owed to certain uh, organizations like the the um, the Health Food and Missionary Literature Literature Surprise from the Adventist. You know, he's been he'd been kept, he'd been uh, kicked out, so. Um, they had decided to cut off the supply of that stuff. So he had no more health food to start to, you know, fund that as well as, um, there was constant police surveillance, um, ever since, um, Geraldine died from leukemia. Mm. And so he decided that it was time to just bug out to the woods. Time to, time to get out and, uh, just 
go to the woods with all my followers and Giselle and uh, our Ugh. kid and all that stuff. So we loaded the band into their vehicles and they set out. They wandered from town to the town band. for a while. Yeah, we're so getting it's, the it's band like back. Eight together. followers. They were just like, "All right, uh, everybody in the van, let's let's get out of here." He and, only has uh, eight they followers around. at that point. Uh, it could be more at this point. I'm not sure, but it never really okay. gets above um like 15. Okay. But pretty soon, it grows for another reason. Okay. Um, so they kind of wander for a while. Uh, in July, they found themselves um in the wilderness of Canada. And it was there that Roche disclosed to the group his vision of a future. Um, he told the group that the world would end in February 17th, 1979, almost in about a year from now, amid a storm of boulder-sized hail, earthquakes, and lightning. Boulder-sized hail. I'm just picturing like, like just like houses raining from above. That's a nice boulder. <laughs> yeah, just like meteor-sized hail, like That's just wild. eradicating everyone. And they were all like, all right, sounds good. They were like, all right, sounds good. What, how do we, what are we doing now? And so he was like, all right, I had a vision um, while we were in the wilderness. I came upon this rock and this rock was so magnificent. <laughs> and that when it, he said that God spoke to him on the rock and as he knelt down to pray, um, he gave them him this vision of this place in the woods that they have to find. So they set out on foot um from the village of St. Uh, Hoag's or whatever into, into the wilderness. <laughs> and um, it's some, some town in, in, in uh, rural Canada. But anyway, they hit the sticks. And the sticks. they hiked about like two days into the wilderness until they found a clearing that was next to a, ri a river and on a small hill. And he was like, this is it. This is what I found. <laughs> After they had found the spot for their place, uh, he made everyone work 17 hours a day to build a commune of like tents and then to uh, build a massive cabin in the middle. That's going to be their like community, like community house where um, he lives his like wooden palace. And uh, because he has like that gastrointestinal ish <laughs> going on, he's like, I'm gonna just sit around and y'all yeah. uh, can do it. Okay. And he's like, I'm gonna I'm control the rations. Cause we, you know, we got to make sure we got food and stuff. Yeah. And so uh, he just sat around and watched them work. And if they complained about hunger or the you know stress on their bodies from working 17 hours a day, he would just say, okay, well, then you get less rations. So yeah. more food for everyone else. Listen, and so I have no to one complained. constantly. So you yeah. got to do this for me. Yeah, it's, like, <laughs> it, it's, it's running out of me. Uh, so <laughs> you got you to gotta do this. God's word and diarrhea. <laughs> yeah. Together. It's a blend. It's a wellness so, blend. God. <laughs> Sorry. Poor guy. Poor guy, honestly. What a knucklehead. No, no. A knucklehead, no. yeah. No. What a knucklehead. So after they had built built this uh, cabin, cabin in the woods, uh, surrounded by the yeah. tents and stuff, um, then it was time to just kind of settle in. Um, but all wasn't great. Uh, Giselle went to um, Roche, and she said that, the women who had not been married yet other than herself were lonely and that um, he should, that, that they should like get married or something. They're, they're lonely. And Roche said that, Oh, I've got a vision. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's amazing that uh, Giselle came to me and said this, um, but I had a vision a few nights, a few nights earlier that um, 
we should uh, everyone should be just married to me. So I'm gonna void all previous marriages, and from now on, all the women are married to me, the prophet, the voice of God. And yeah. um, that made me. So baby at that barf. point, at that point, they're all like, "All right, yeah." I mean, all those all those other young young ladies were just like obsessed with Roche anyway. They uh, followed him out in the woods, and so they're all like, "Okay, yeah, that sounds good." Giselle's probably not okay with this. Yeah. Giselle's Giselle was like, "I mean, they're lonely, but I didn't want you to have you know intercourse with all of them." But all right, you know, go Yikes. off, King. And uh, Giselle's like, "What have I done?" Giselle's like, uh, "That backfired." Um, all right, uh, I can't voice my opinion, or else I get punched in the mouth. So I guess I gotta be alright with this. Oh no, I can't voice so, my opinion, uh, or else I get punched, or I my husband marries eighteen other women. <laughs> oh no. Uh, yeah. So uh, this led to an event um, where Nicole. Uh, had confide, confided to Giselle that she and Roche had had intercourse while everyone else was working while they were building the cabins. And this hurt Giselle's feelings so much that she fled from the cabin. But it enraged Roche that she was going to run away. So he chased her down and mm. squeezed his hands around her throat mm. and she ba- basically threatening her and she was afraid for her life. So she agreed to just like, let it let it be it's Uh-oh. just a whole nother threatening tactic so now we're going to start with the uh the spiral into uh this guy's crazy and uh he doesn't care about these people okay in early november in 1980 um there was a, a a local man that joined the commune so they were always open to new members but they were always open with like you know if you come here you're gonna have to work and he was the f- actually the first new member of the group since the healthy living clinic um, he had undergone treatment for depression at um, the same hospital that declared um, Roche Thoreau mentally sound. So a guy named Paul Veer, mm-hmm. he um, had undergone treatment for depression at uh, the same hospital that uh, Terrio was claimed uh, was that he had been declared mentally sound from. So they went to the same hospital and after hearing about Roche on television, um, he decided to head to the Hills to see the anthill kids. And after passing um, Gabrielle's examination, who was another lady um, part of the anthill kids, one of the younger people, you're going to hear her a lot because she's also um, the nurse of the camp. So she's the one that knows the most about uh, first aid besides Roche himself. So Vera was permitted to stay in the commune after Gabrielle had examined him and said that, you know, he's fine. He's it's good to stay here. But Roche said he has to stay in the storage shed away from Roche and his family in quotation marks. Um, and that he would get a small wood stove, a case of 24 bottles of home brewed beer, two <laughs> hens, a rooster and one meal a day. Um, as well as Veer's job in addition to his normal responsibilities of chopping wood, storing food rations for the winter, and continuing constructions on uh, Roche's wood cabin palace. Uh, He would have to babysit the group's three non-Roche children. Samuel, Miriam, Samuel is is two, by the way, Miriam is four, and um, Simon is two. Mm. Veer was mentally unstable stable uh he was just kind of not all the way there uh his family had said earlier that, uh or after the fact that he was um 
uh, mentally handicapped, um, mentally disabled. Um, and so he's only fit to look after the quote unquote, this is from Rocha's mouth animals, which were the children that weren't of Rocha's seed. Right. So yeah. he didn't care about these kids at all. Right. You know, the perfect babysitter for kids that you don't care about. Just right. a mentally handicapped man who isn't really all, all there and, you know. Yeah, And great. that, yeah. So that goes about as well as you think. Um, because Samuel was crying one night, the two-year-old, and keeping mm-hmm. Vera awake. Vera lost his temper and started screaming at the child to be quiet. Then he picked up the two-year-old by the throat <gasps> and started punching him into the face, punching the kid in the face like five or six times. Oh, no. Uh, Mature content warning. The next yeah. day. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Whoops. The next day, uh, th- uh, Terrio dis- discovered what had happened and placed Samuel under the care of Gabrielle, the nurse for the group. Two years and, old? Yeah, two years old. Oh and my God, that's so baby. Just, you know, didn't really know how to handle the uh, crying. Yeah. And just kind of snapped on him and beat him up. Ugh. Uh, allegedly Gabrielle said that baby Samuel's head was flopping around on his neck and that his private parts had swelled up. That's important because Roche then decided I am the master of anatomy and the healer of the group. And he took a pair of scissors after (gasps) sterilizing them in alcohol. No, 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 very briefly, the next day, Samuel oh, was no. found dead. Yeah. From the from trauma and just infection, like, sep- he's two. With septic. Yeah. What the hell? He's two. Oh, no. So, oh, God. Yeah. Terrible things. Terrible things. Yeah. Roche decided to punish Veer, the guy yeah. who's beat up the two year old, the guy who's mainly handicapped, probably didn't know what he was doing, but I'm not defending him. Samuel um, is not Roche's kid, right? Samuel's not Roche's kid. It's okay. like a kid of Solange. Okay. Oh. Um, one of the, one of the ladies in the group. Yeah. And Roche decides to punish Veer by castrating him. Uh, <gasps> he actually he actually talks him into it. He claimed it would cure Veer's headaches, the mentally handicapped man, as well as his excessive masturbation that was causing Veer <laughs> Veer respiratory oh, no. difficulties. <laughs> so he had trouble breathing. And so, you know, anatomy <laughs> master Roche is like, listen, man, you got to lose those balls. Respiratory uh, difficulties. How many times are you jacking off that you ca- it causes respiratory difficulties? I don't know. What I'm the not, fuck? I'm not Veer, but That's somehow true. Roche convinced him. <laughs> somehow Roche <laughs> convinced him by explaining his hierarchy, like his place in the group, and that he was a slave, uh, and that if he underwent the castration, he would then become a eunuch, which would be a step up in life. And he could sing in the little boys choir. <laughs> yeah. Oh. He then asked Veer to write a letter of consent and said it, that he wouldn't uh, hold Roche uh, liable, and That's he didn't fucked. have to sign it if he didn't want to sign it. But guess That's what? Veer, Veer signed, he signed it. it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so fucked because now he can't, there's no lawsuit or anything they can come out of that. So the rest of the stuff just gets graphic because it has to, because this implies the just terrible things that Roche would do to people. All right, let's do it. That's Herbert here. Blanket content warning. Yep. Thank you. Okay. All right. Terrio had Veer lie on the kitchen table as Gabrielle fetched the medical instruments. Oh, good. Gabrielle, get my surgeon bag. 
Scalpel. And basically, <laughs> she fetched an elastic band, a razor blade, a magnifying no. glass, a pair of tweezers, and magnifying ethanol, glass. ethanol don't alcohol. My, don't do my boy dirty like that. Magnifying uh, glass. See, we got to uh, zoom in because it's so tiny. Listen, Roche is a professional, all right? Right, of course. And the operation itself apparently was painless. Uh, and the... the <laughs> The testicles were discarded in a Kleenex, although Veer continued to bleed for a week afterwards. Gabrielle gave him a new saltwater compress every 20 minutes and ensured he got plenty of iron in his diet. Salt what? So he castrated him, but Roche didn't stop there. He continued to brutalize and abuse Veer daily as more punishment and atonement for his murder of Samuel. But this led to November 5th when Veer fled to the village of St. Hoag's, where he told the villagers that a baby had died after being kicked by a horse. He's talking about Samuel. That was what they had, he had, Roche had told everyone to try to cover up the death. Oh. So police heard that a baby had died after being kicked by a horse, but it wasn't reported. So they raided the compound. They arrested um, Roche and Samuel's parents and relocated the seven children to foster homes. They found the child's remains and the commune members told the story of Veer beating the child. They also found Veer's letter of consent to the castration operation and even the ballots that had been used for the vote to decide whether or not they were going to castrate him. It's a great band name, by the way, the castration operation. Castration operation. It's great. I played bass for them in college. But the weird thing that I guess the police necessarily didn't like, but they didn't have any, you know, reason to be that suspicious, uh, suspicious was no one was no one questioned by the police was at all upset or even embarrassed about what had happened um, or of having involved a 12 year old boy in the decision. But like the voting for castration process, <laughs> no one thought that was weird. Yeah. So they, that's uh, a red you flag. Know, yeah. The police was like, all right, that's weird. Yeah. Um, but Roche was eventually tried and uh, sentenced to two years in prison and three years probation for the murder of Samuel. Or And um, so was uh, the other men. So Jacques, um, Claude, and Veer were sentenced to prison time. Oh. As well as, uh, I think, the mother of the kid and um, not Gabrielle. Um, it, was, it was another uh, couple women who were... Um, in on the murder or whatever helped yeah. hide the body and so a lot of people went to prison but a lot of the people are mainly all of the original followers as well as um a couple people that had they had picked up since the health clinic they basically just waited around in the city where roche was imprisoned at and waited for him to get out mm. and after prison roche had an idea of what they would do next yeah so they said Roche was like, all right, we're going to go back into the bush and start all over again. This time on Lot 4, Concession 5, in Somerville Township, Burt River, Canada. Well, I'm not exactly sure where that is, but it's another it's another rural township. But they started over in, uh, I think it's Ontario, actually. Um, and this time it's, it's on a kind of a closer, less remote area. But um, it, like it's still located within the township. Mm. So they started over. They built up a. Uh, they built up their own like uh, provisions this time. Uh, the welfare system was different in Ontario, so they had to um, uh, basically start selling goods or subsist off the land. 
And so this is where they got the name of the Ant Hill Kids. This was the brand. So they would sell, um, like, they would bake breads and mm. uh, make uh, alcohol and other other stuff. And they would sell them in the local markets. And their brand was the Ant Hill Kids because that's what Roche thought that they all looked like as they were all busy making uh, stuff to sell at the market. He was like, y'all, y'all, it's like I'm your, I'm the, I'm the queen ant and y'all are just my ants just, right. you know working and and we're all working just 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 to, for the better of the anthill oh no so he labeled them all anthill kids okay that's where they got the name because that's what they became known as uh in the town that answers my question yes yeah sure does okay but um so basically the abuse and punishment of veer started to uh spill over onto other people uh other of, of uh the others the other followers so the women Why the other not? Men. yeah so he got a taste for it with veer and sometimes he would beat or whip his followers sometimes he would strike them with the broadside of an axe or with a hammer they were forbidden to go to the hospital sometimes he would urinate on them or force them to perform acts i'm not saying that word on one right. another or smear smear themselves with each other's things um <laughs> once t- you have to specify what that means with with each other's doo doo. Oh, ow! So, terrible things. Gross. Uh, once he slashed Jacques' jugular with a broken wine glass. He also ordered uh, Jacques to be circumcised. His whole like glands removed, so his just entire yeah like, shaft gone. His jugular with a how did that not kill him? Yeah, he cut him with a wine glass. Oh. Uh, you got you. You forget that Roche is a renowned surgeon. Oh right, yeah. It was he probably... studied the Old Testament and anatomy, so he's good. He's an, a surgeon ordained by by God. By by so Christ, yeah. Even better than medical school. <laughs> so somehow, between Gabrielle and Roche's whatever natural healing, he survived. Um, but this honestly had like a cathartic effect on his followers they they had this in their mind that he was punishing them for their sins and that they were now purified as a result of his punishment and roche would always weep the next day um a lot of these beatings and stuff would happen uh after or after he had consumed a little alcohol so he was definitely like an alcoholic um and he would weep the next day after all the alcohol had left his system and he would beg god um to stop using him as a as a vehicle for god's cruel justice like he viewed himself as the instrument for god to punish his followers for doing wrong okay um and so this just is a whole weird thing but all of his followers were still obsessed with him because they thought that he was the voice of god Mm. um okay everyone buckle up things get really bad and this leads to his arrest Okay. Uh, the next the next few uh, anecdotes or stories okay. on january 26 1985 so we're now a couple about eight years from when all, all of this started um somewhere shortly around after 9 a.m gabrielle put her five-month-old baby roche's son Ele- elazar in a wheelbarrow it was snowing and the temperature was negative 10 degrees celsius uh, mm. which is 14 degrees fahrenheit mm. and um and by 10 45 a.m the baby was dead oh 
Roche had hated the child and said that it bore the mark of the devil and he had often beaten it, a five-month-old. Mm. Five Gabrielle thought that this would be an act of mercy for the infant and wanted to save him from Roche's abuse. Aww. The county coroner, um, Al Lackey, a friend of Roche, claimed that it had been sudden infant death syndrome. Oh, so, God. Helped him sweep it under the rug, the county coroner did. Yeah. Um, Mar- Marys, uh, Grenier, which was an- another one, uh, mm-hmm. um, basically, uh, she was, she was one of the only adult women that, uh, Roche had not taken as his own wife. Like he didn't like this girl. Oh. Um, she had kids <laughs> from a previous marriage and, um, he had permitted, uh, her to leave with two of her three surviving children, uh, a two year old and an infant. The only condition was that her eldest daughter, which is her third child, a girl she had born before her days with the cult, who was Uh-oh. now nearing puberty, Uh-oh. remained behind, destined to become the next of Roche's wives. Ah, oh, fuck. So Mary got the hell out of there because she saw her ch- her chance, but after months of learning how to function in the real world and having spent eight years under uh, Roche's rule, she decided that she would pursue legal action and get custom- custody of the remaining daughter. Let's, hell yeah. Let's go, Mary's. She is the catalyst that starts all of this, like, CPS, like, Child Protective Services and all that stuff. And this was all that um, the CAS, which stands for Canadian something services. Uh, It's, like, Child Protective Services. To sweep in. Adolescent. I don't know. Yeah. uh, Canadian Adolescent Services. It doesn't matter. I don't know. I'm sorry. Um, But you all know what I'm saying. This is, like, Mm. uh, the foster system. This is who uh, social workers come in. They come in, they sweep in, they take the kids to foster homes, all of the children, um, and put them in new environments. Uh, however, a lot of the kids exhibited disturbing behavior, which indicated that they had been abused on the compound. Mm. As the children were asked about the conditions in the commune, more and more horrifying details were revealed. Ugh. So... We all know that Roche had separated the children in the compound into two groups, his own chosen children, who enjoyed a privileged position in the commune, and those who were not of his own, particularly the children of Marys, um, as well as the young Simon uh, Oilette, who was one of the original three, uh, along with Samuel, all of whom were regarded as animals and slaves. Roche saw to care for his own children, uh, uh, Roche saw to the care of his own children. The mentally deficient Paul, uh, Veer took taken on um, the babysitter role still. Um, a lot of Gr- Grenier's children crawled like animals. So a lot of Mary's children, uh, they crawled like animals, the ones that were not being overlooked by Roche and were severely malnourished. Um, adults and, and children alike were basically um, forbidden from speaking to the kids that weren't of Roche's own chosen children. I see. So basically in 1987, after the CPS child protective services had, had sweeped in, um, and, and took all the kids away, uh, the court ruled that, that all the children will be made wards of the Canadian crown and that there will be no parental access to anyone from the commune. This made things a whole lot worse for the remaining adults after the kids left. Now that Mm -hmm. Roche could let loose his frustrations Mm -hmm. and not, you know, in whatever capacity, keep it together for the kid. Mm. And here's what eventually led to him being uh, sent uh, sent to jail. Mm. 
Okay. Um, it's it's this next whole exposition. Or okay. Next story. So one afternoon, he got exceedingly drunk. He started strangling the women as he does, uh, asking if they knew that their breath belonged to him. And Ugh. then he decided to put on um some of his costume jewelry that he kept for whenever he felt like being a prophet. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we remember Solange, yep. one of the original girls. Yeah. He turned to her um, and said, are you ready? I'm going to treat you tonight. Mm. Solange had been having terrible um, uh, stomach aches and was suffering from, from pains and stuff like that. Um. Um, and he so he led her to the, to the bakery. He cleared off the kitchen table, as you do. And Solange undressed and laid down. Roche roughly tried to insert an enema tube into Solange. Um, the enema fluid was a mixture of molasses, oil, and water. So another home uh, remedy. Yeah. Uh, he spent half an hour of getting this done. And uh, he started pressing and punching on Solange's stomach. Basically just trying to heal her. But, I mean, uh, doing terrible things. Uh, when she put her hands up to like tell him no and to fend him off, Roche simply told her to move her hands. And she did. Because he's the voice of God. He, he then inserted a tube down her throat and told everyone else to blow and suck on the tube in order to <gasps> simulate breathing. So everyone's there. Oh, no. He, he then, Master Surgeon, takes a knife, yeah. makes a five-inch vertical incision on Solange. Five Solange's, inches? Solange's Holy right shit. side, just below the ridge, so on her yeah. side. He pulled out a strip of tissue, about four inches long and a quarter mm. inch thick, and tore it off. Tore it off, telling her, There! You're gonna be all right and then he had someone sew her up wound closed and solange got up everyone went back to the cabin out of the bakery roche ordered a warm bath for her and that made her feel worse then roche right. gave her a cold bath and then she went back to her bed blood started coming out of her mouth and she died Jesus. because he's not a surgeon yeah but you know if someone's got a tummy ache why not cut them open jesus Oh, so the doctors later said that she had died of uh, acute peritonitis, peritonitis, which is an inflammation. Yes, it's like an inflammation of the peritoneum caused by digestive fluids leaking into the abdominal cavity, cavity. i.e. he's not a surgeon. It Uh was fatal. He Mm -hmm. murdered Solange. So Roche had convinced himself after he had uh, um, talked with someone from uh, the Latter-day Saints, one of his connections from call Mormons. Back. So, yeah, call back to that. It is. that's it, And they decided that another messed up guy from the Mormon uh, place, they convinced themselves that Solange was to be the first reverse birth, a spiritual rebirth through the belly of a male. Oh, fuck no. What is that? Yeah. So Roche became convinced that he was pregnant with his deceased wife, Solange, through some weird form of rebirth. He ordered ordered one of the men, Claude, to... So they had buried Solange. He ordered him to dig her back up, and he had Gabrielle open Solange's body. No, and no, pour no, vinegar no, 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 no. on her internal organs to keep worms away. Then they <gasps> buried her again. But Ew. a few days later, he had Claude dig her up again, exhume her a second time. Her body was beginning to decay, but 
trigger warning content warning yeah pause all right roche had big plans he got jacques to make a hole in solange's skull with a hand drill then he masturbated into the hole onto her rotting rotting brain and convinced that he would be able to resuscitate her so it's like some fucking frankenstein shit and then he had all of the other men from the commune commit acts of necrophilia oh no wow how have i not heard of this it's it's insane do you have have pictures for me I do, but they're not of this. <laughs> well, I know, no, I know, I know. I didn't mean of this. I just we'll, we'll look at the we'll, we'll look at the pictures afterwards of just the people. Okay, um, okay. because we're gonna get deep into it. So this didn't stop here. Mm. Giselle told Roche that Solange's wish had been to be cremated. Roche agreed to have the group burn Solange's body, but before the cremation, he had Gabrielle move one of Solange's ribs, which he kept wrapped up in leather around with him. And after the cremation, everyone took some of the bones to keep. Um, Roche collected some of the fragments and put them in a jar with olive oil as a preservative, where he would hmm. regularly masturbate into the jar <gasps> to try to continuously re like bring her like, back to life respawn. through rebirth. What? So he would just continuously be like, I want to try this rebirth thing and oh no, do terrible things. Where did he get that idea even? I, He's crazy. He's crazy. That's true. So That's, fast I'm forward assuming now. It, it originated from anywhere other than his head. <laughs> yeah. So all this messed uh. up stuff happened and it just kind of got uh, things kind of not cooled down. He continued to uh, abuse people consistently okay. and beat people. But um it all kind of culminated. So that was one of the anecdotes that happened. One of the examples of the abuse. Mm. He killed Solange. Yeah. July 26, 1989. Roche became drunk. This is not unusual. Um, Giselle, Claude, Francine, and Maurice all managed to sneak away into the bush to hide from Roche because when he gets drunk, he starts hurting people. Gabrielle, the nurse, however, did not. Uh. Roche remembered that Gabrielle had a stiff, stiff pinky finger. And he told her to put her hand on the t- kitchen table. And instead of looking at the finger, however, he stabbed her hand with a hunting knife, pinning her to the table. <gasps> Blood began to pour out of his out of the hand, but Roche just went to get another beer. Gabrielle forced herself to remain conscious, and after forty five minutes, Roche came back to see if Ga- see that Gabrielle's whole arm had turned blue. It's not looking so good, is it? He said. He fetches a carpet knife, which I don't know if you know what that is. I'll show you a, video, a picture of yeah. it. And he began whittling away at her arm. <gasps> oh, away, halfway between the elbow and the shoulder. So, above the elbow, below the shoulder. And he Holy. whittled it all the way to the bone. Too drunk to finish, he called Chantal over to finish the job. She cleared a narrow band of exposed bone that went all the way around Gabrielle's arm. Then Roche dislodged the hunting knife, which was pinning Gabrielle's arm to the table, took her over to a stump that was sticking out of the kitchen floor. Taking a dull meat cleaver, he swung at the exposed bone. His first swing, you know, it missed. Uh, His second swing amputated Gabrielle Lavalli's arm completely off. Oh. My. God. Gabrielle hadn't cried the entire time. (gasps) The next day, she went to a woman's shelter, but returned to the compound on prompting from Jacques. 
A couple days later, Roche decided that Gabrielle's stump was gangrenous and used a pair of scissors to cut out the infection. He also cut a chunk from her breast and then hit her on the head with the side of an axe. She fled into the bushes, away from, like into the forest, and when she came to her senses two days later, she found the insects had laid eggs in her head wound, and she returned to the cabin Ooh. only to find Roche still drunk and itching to operate. Oh, that sentence is fucking itching to operate. nasty. Jacques used the acetylene torch, which is just like a, a blowtorch, yeah. to cut a piece of... Um, a drive shaft off of one of the old cars in the yard. Roche no. heated this metal until it was red hot and <gasps> pressed it against Gabrielle's stump. He was so drunk, he kept dropping it on Gabrielle's body before he finally finished. Oh, no. But listen, Gabrielle lived. Gabrielle escaped on August 16th, 1989. What the fuck? She Gabrielle! She through all this stuff. This she, fucking queen? I know. She's, a, she's an animal. And I got a picture of her. You'll have to see her. That's she made wild. it to a hospital. And concocted a story to explain the missing arm. She's still covering for him. But the police, like, the hospital's like, yo, lady, you're messed up. Like, I'm calling the police. Yeah. The police were called, and the constable filed a charge of aggregated assault against Roche Terrio. But when the police arrived on August 19th with a warrant for Roche's arrest, the compound was deserted. Roche, Jacques, Chantal, or Chantel, uh, Nicole together with the two youngest babies, had fled to Quebec. The others had gone home to their families. Roche's spell was finally broken. Oh, thank God. Except, but, where the fuck is he? Exactly. It took them six weeks to find Terrio, And it wasn't until October 6, 1989, later that year, that Giselle decided to tell everyone about Solange's death. Unbeknownst to Giselle, the very day Roche was app- apprehended by the police at last. So on October 6th, Giselle spilled the beans, spills the beans, and Roche was was apprehended by the police. Wow. Everyone pled guilty to all charges laid against them relating to Gabrielle's amputation. Roche netted 12 years, later reduced to 10 years because of Roche's genuine remorse and concern for the victim, oh, in words of the court. Fuck that. Uh, they all got jail time. Roche got the most. The police also pressed charges against Roche for first-degree murder, but when the court found there was insufficient evidence for the murder had been premeditated, Roche was committed to a trial for second-degree murder. Gotta love Canada and their second-degree murder charges. We do have listeners. Roche's lawyers made a deal. Oh well, no, I mean it's just like (laughs) they don't they don't rush to the first-degree murder thing, which I mean honestly, it could be right for people that yeah but they you know, charged robert picton with first second degree murder yeah i don't i don't have to defend them but i mean That's canada I'm, i hope it's better now and it probably is but back then it was messed mm. up roche made a deal with his lawyers that roche would plead guilty to this charge if no further charges were brought against him for secondary murder so that didn't work out because in january 18th 1993 canada did the big one and sentenced him to life in prison. Yeah! But he was eligible for parole in 1999. Fuck! <laughs> <laughs> no! So, Did he get out? There were people... There, no, he didn't, oh. he didn't make parole. Okay, there were people okay. still loyal to Roche. Francine, Chantal, Nicole, uh, and a couple other people. And they bore him children while he was in prison. No! Conjugal, conjugal visits. Ugh. 
He was denied parole. He died in 2011. And wow. guess how he died? This is awesome. Tell this me, tell awesome. me, tell so, me. I'm so pumped. Uh, so Terrio was found dead near his cell at Dorchester Penitentiary. His death is believed to be the result of an altercation with his cellmate, Matthew <laughs> McDonald, a 60-year-old convicted murder, murderer from Port Alport, Newfoundland, who was charged with the killing of some people. He was charged with second-degree murder and then okay. sentenced to life in prison. Okay. Having already been serving a life sentence for a previous murder charge, McDonald stabbed Roche in the neck with a shiv. After he had been constantly talking about his uh, his murders and like what he would do to, uh, in his cult life, he got tired of it, stabbed him in the neck, walked to the guard station, handed them the shiv, and proclaimed, that piece of shit is down on the range. Here's the knife. I've sliced him up. <laughs> yes! So Justice! he received another life sentence. Wow. But honestly... It should have just been counted as community Fucking service. Fucking worth it, dude. Yeah. Oh. And that's my mystery. It's a <gasps> long one, and I know we didn't get to banter long, but what? God, it's disgusting. It's horrible, but also fascinating. What the hell? Yeah. What the hell? <gasps> okay, can I look at the pictures now? Yeah, so let's take a couple look at the pictures. I want to get your idea on what everyone looks like. So, um... I'm going to say something, and I don't want it to be... I hope it doesn't come back to bite me in the butt, but he okay. kind of looks like my grandfather. <laughs> my grandfather on my dad's side. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no! But um, the first one on the drive is, like, him with all, <laughs> all, all the ladies. Okay. Uh, um, I've skip seen over this the guy. Second one. I know he's he's like he's one of Canada's most like oh, um, famous uh, things. I don't know why I'm fixated on Canada, but it's crazy. <gasps> uh, whenever he's in the red, what is that, Gabrielle? It is. Yes. Do you see, do you see her arm? Yeah. No, I don't, because it's gone. Because it's gone. <laughs> she lived. Wow. She, she remarried. Um, she got custody of a couple of her kids, or uh, maybe some of her kids, and she's now, I think she speaks, but I can't wow. read French. So um, okay. she does She does something um, in, within f- either French par- or French government or at least French culture. Um, or Jesus. She's outspoken based about on this something. Picture. Um, or it's, it's Canadian. Or she's Canadian, sorry. How she's could French-Canadian. you still be religious after this? I don't know, but. Yikes. One of the more haunting photos is like uh, the gray photo towards the see. end. Or, oh, what is this? It's titled Roche. Ugh, what is it? It what says is- Roche and his harem. Oh, no. And you can see Solange, Gabrielle, Chantal, Maurice, Josie, Francine, Nicole, and Giselle. I don't know which ones are which, but it's like from... It says from left. Clockwise, clockwise from, from, what, from front left. left. So the one... Sitting directly to his left on his on his uh, knee is Solange. Okay. Gabrielle's the next one up. Yep. Then Chantal on the outside. Gabrielle. Wow. Holy shit. And those are all the kids. Wow. There's a lot of them. Yeah, I think he like there at one point there were twenty kids in the comedy. Fucking Nazi youth! Look at those baby blonde babies! Look at that! But do you see? Do you see old King Roche? He used to dress up in like costume and and wear they would make he would make people wear tunics and he would yeah. wear a crown and like jewelry. 
Um, but also, he's, he's he's kind of a charismatic looking man. Yeah, he just, I mean, he just looks like some I dig guy. The beard. Don't, don't say that. The things he did, the things that Beard saw. I don't want to talk about it. Gross, man. Because we already talked about it. Blech. Wow. Trev. But isn't that, isn't that, that terrible? That was a wild ride. That's fucked up. Thank you, friends, for sticking with us. Yeah, if you're still here, thanks. (laughs) If you're still here, thank you. And maybe a second poll needs to go out. Go out. This one was a little um, graphic. Yeah, to say the least. Uh, I don't know if you or Marissa has have gotten this into detail, but I was thinking about that. I don't make this all messed up. Yeah. Um, You know what I I personally love is that you were talking about, you know testes and in kleenexes and and yeah hot and doo-doo. car parts and then you censored feces <laughs> i'm sorry i i chicken out sometimes i'm trying to give you all the facts but sporadic listen wow. girlfriends this one was messed up but that's that's the reality that we live in um but what i would like to choose to end on yes um is the fact that there was lots of people that went out and got help and tried to break the chain. Yes. And I'm so grateful that Gabrielle was able to escape after her ordeal and be able to put a stop to this. Yeah. Um, and so I yeah, really fucking just wanna... Gabrielle's my hero, dude. Look she, at her. And the fact that she's still alive and I don't know if she's still alive today, but yeah. that she made it out and had a life afterwards and, and began That's to uh, assimilate into, into like, you know, the real world. That's awesome. And she's honestly the hero of the story. She's the baddest bitch with one arm I know. I mean, all the survivors are heroes of the story. Except yes, for the ones course. that still drink is Kool-Aid. They're the ones that yeah, need to be saved. That's... Yikes. Wow. That's insane. Hey, thanks for sticking it out. Episode 32. We love yep. you. We love you. Go go eat something. Go uh, Watch something just... funny, for fuck's sake. That was terrible. I, I wanted to bring levity to it, but at the same time... No, just, both of our cases wild. were just super dark, so... I mean, it's not... Robert Picton, like, we could have gone a lot darker with that one. I think we made up for it on this one. Yeah, I didn't want to chicken out this time, so... Yeah. Um, let, let us know if you like it. Uh, anyways, I, I love you guys. This is I thought this was awesome, so... But it does get to be a lot. So, like, detox however you need to detox. Follow us on Instagram at Where Murder Meets Mystery and write to us at what email address trev where murder meets mystery at gmail.com great and send us your episode suggestions your case your mystery suggestions and as always stay stay clammy is that what we said <laughs> Stay clammy. channel gabrielle we need to find we need to get it stay outro. tuned for the next one yes that's a great one super original outro great seo on that one listen also um (laughs) quick quick shout out shout out to tom you know yeah tom he wanted to know and uh shout out to cooper too so hey coop what up Coop? tom and cooper we love you guys are they both still listening my sister just said Cooper. yeah Yeah. if they make if they made it this far then it's crazy but we keep this (laughs) It's been like an eight minute long breakdown for the ending of this. So yeah, without further ado, we'll see yes. you guys next week. <laughs> Bye. Bye.